Awesome. So this this event has been a long time coming. Jacob, uh, as well as actually a, a number of our friends, have enjoyed Roger's puzzles for quite some time. You have a little bit of a cult following uh, among certain groups of nerdy mathematicians. And uh, uh, and so we're excited to have you today to talk about it. And uh, I'm just going to hand the control over to Jacob, who is um, uh, going to be running today's event. Perfect. Thank you, Max. Um, sorry, I already did some of the introductions because I got too excited, but Roger made this wonderful book I'm holding up, which is probably hard to see since I'm not screen sharing right now. But it's about cave puzzles. And besides doing all these fancy mystery hunt things, being a grandmaster puzzle solver, uh, going to do math at Harvard and stuff, we're talking about cave puzzles today. Because um, I got this book at the start of COVID and made a promise to myself that I wouldn't reach out to Roger to ask him to come speak to Computation Club despite how excited I was until I finished them. So after about two years of work, we finally did it. And it's going to be sort of a free form um, discussion. So people feel free to jump in, especially because I think I'll be excitable and have enough questions that I'll just fill the entire time otherwise. So don't feel bad about interrupting at all. And yeah. With all that being said, thank you, Roger, for coming to speak with us today. No problem, Jacob. Happy to be here. I love puzzles. I love talking about puzzles and making puzzles. Uh, although, as you say, I'm a mathematician by trade. I'm probably more interested in puzzles than math. So uh, any excuse to talk more about puzzles uh, and a little bit about math uh, is a good one for me. So uh, yeah. yeah, please folks uh, ask whatever questions you have. Happy to talk about the process uh, of solving, of creating, of competing, because I've competed in puzzle competitions too for many years, uh, and they're all interrelated to various degrees. Uh, I mean, one of the things I, I can talk about is I, I think becoming a better solver makes you a better constructor, becoming a better constructor makes you a better competitor, et cetera. It's sort of a loop of, of gaining familiarity with puzzles in general and particular puzzle types. Yeah, that is that is amazing. And I hope we can get into some of those things soon. I was thinking to start us off, I could actually share a very quick JavaScript program that um, I fixed what ChatGPT made because I hate JavaScript, but want something for the website. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just going to share this in the chat right now. You can also find it on our site. Jacob, you, you can share a screen if you want. I made you co-host. Oh, I, I will. Yeah, I'll do that in a okay. second. But Roger, what I was thinking is, as I set this up with the first puzzle in your book, which I think you said was okay for us to share, um, would you sure. mind, as I'm setting all that up, talking about some of the rules of cave puzzles and sort of what that's about, any history about how you found these or why you wanted them? And then by the time you're done with that, we can just try to solve one in real time so people can get the gist of how it works. Uh, sure, sounds good. Right. So uh, cave is a genre of logic puzzle, right? And when I say logic puzzle here, I mean a grid logic puzzle, like a Sudoku. It, it tends to be the grid logic puzzle that people are most familiar with. Um, th there exist hundreds, if not thousands, of different genres of these grid filling puzzles, um, some of which involve putting numbers in a grid, or maybe drawing a loop in a grid, or shading certain squares and unshading certain squares, uh, which is what, what's actually going to happen in cave puzzles. Um, so probably like everybody else, I did get started with Sudoku. That's sort of the first logic puzzle you're ever going to run into. Uh, and this was, you know, a long time ago, back in the days before Sudoku was a household name. Um, but, but I did find it, uh, you know, on some obscure Japanese website in the nineties, 
back when website was even sort of an obscure concept, uh, the risk of sounding too old. Uh, and uh, right, I liked it. I started doing a lot of Sudoku and trying to find as many of these other different kinds of logic puzzles you could find. Sort of used to be hard to find them again in the pre-internet days. Uh, most of these came from Japan, like Sudoku itself, which I had many of them have Japanese inspired names. Um, they used to be a little bit hard to find in the US. Uh, you had to search down paper copies here and there. Um, but uh, Cave, which uh, was a Japanese invention, it it, uh, it also went under the name Corral for a while and actually Bag for a while. You can find it under all three names if, if you search. Um, it, it was used in the US Puzzle Championship for a few years, uh, which is a, a tournament that, uh, an annual tournament that the US has been holding for a while to choose its representatives to go to the World Puzzle Championship. Uh, and that's where I ran into this puzzle for the first time. And I, I, it's hard to say what particular tickled me about it compared to other shading puzzles, loop puzzles, logic puzzles, but I took to it. Uh, and then I uh, eventually, uh, you know, it's funny because it probably started with writing a solver for it. So I coded up a solver for it. Um, in my mind, coding up a solver and coding up a constructor are very close to the same thing. And I'll we'll talk about why that is. Um, so by the time I had built a good solver for it, I sort of felt like I had a good constructor for it. Uh, and I started making some of these puzzles. And I made plenty of other logic puzzle types before. Um, but this particularly grabbed me to the point where I just found myself making more and more and more of them. Uh, and then suddenly I had a hundred and I said, wow, I, I should really actually try to get somebody to solve some of these. <laughs> For the most part, I was just making them and storing them uh, in directories where no one was ever going to see them. Uh, I talked to a publisher and that's how the book came to be. But let, let's talk a little bit about the rules of the puzzle, right? So it starts with a grid. Uh, it, I traditionally use 10 by 10 grids. That's just for tradition reasons. There's no particular reason it has to be 10 by 10. Uh, a grid of numbers um, with the idea being that you're gonna shade some cells to form what we call the rock and everything that is unshaded is the cave. Um, and there's a couple of rules that uh, constrain that. So the first rule is that all, all of the given numbers have to be unshaded. They have to be part of the cave. They can't be part of the rock. Um, and Roger, the, just to I can start showing this as we go through right here. So for example, all the numbers are white, which means um, they are part of the cave. This gray is an in-between. We don't know what it is. But for example, uh, this would be saying, look, here's a rock. So this is what we're sort of filling in. And please direct me to do whatever visual demo makes sense as you explain, because we can just do that. Thank you. Yeah. No, that, that's exactly right. That, uh, and that's that's how the programs treat them. They're, you're sort of in one of these three states. You're known open, you're known rock, or you're in this indeterminate state. Um, right. So there's rules about the shape of the cave. So in particular, all of the cave has to be connected in one horizontally and vertically contiguous block. So yeah, you should be able to illustrate uh, that, Jacob. Uh, or, or So that's, uh, in this, this scenario, I'm actually talking about the white part has to all be connected. Oh, right? oh, so, right. Sorry. No, you're right. Uh, so you, you must connect all the white cells in such a way that it's all one contiguous block. You can never have black cells that sort of form a complete line across the grid and cut off certain white cells from other white cells. You have to be forming one contiguous cave. Yeah. Uh, that's one rule. Um, also, that cave can have no loop, can have no uh, islands of rock within it. So th there's a couple different ways to think about that constraint. 
Uh, right. Something so like, like this would not be allowed. You can't have any. That would not be allowed. That's right. For many reasons, but yeah. A section of, since, of cave that doesn't connect to anything else. Yeah, since you ahead, can't Max. have any. You can't have any gray when you're done, right? And therefore, the rule for white is dual to the rule for black. Either one would be sufficient to get the same outcome. Like if if all the whites are contiguously connected. Oh no no no! The blacks might not be continuous, right? There could be a they they could be partitioned. That's the issue. That's right. Yeah. Well, really, what you don't the blacks are allowed to be partitioned. Only the whites need okay. to be in one contiguous block. But what must Got be it. true for okay. the blacks is that every black cell must be able to get to to the edge via a, a contiguous path of black cells. What you can't have is a black cell in the middle of a bunch of white. That would sort of Got be it. a freestanding island of rock, and that's not allowed. So you right. have one so contiguous pretend, blob of white surrounded by rock. Yeah, so if we pretend that all of, forget the numbers that rule Roger hasn't explained yet, just pretend all the grays are white, this is a valid configuration of black where the white is not disconnected. But if I were to do something like this, this would not be allowed because this cave or the, the rock piece needs to always be touching an edge. So if you're doing a puzzle and you find out that something over here is a rock, then you know that this has to have some path that connects to an edge and diagonals don't count. So this would not be, um, yeah. But yeah, please continue, Roger. I just thought it would be helpful. No, that's exactly right. And that, that will be an important solving strategy as you start to do these, as Jacob says, you're gonna find you have rock and you're gonna wanna make sure that rock doesn't get isolated, make sure it gets to an edge and 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 the converse. When you have these little pieces of white, you wanna make sure they don't get isolated make sure they connect to other stuff. Um, right, so really the final thing is the numbers, right? We haven't yet talked about why there are numbers in some of these cells. So the number tells you how many white cells you can see from that cell uh, looking directly, uh, horizontally, and vertically uh, with your view blocked by rock and the edge of the board. Um, ooh, I, a question Just about uh, on a sphere. I, I have seen toroidal examples, and things can get very confusing if you, if you don't allow the edge of the board to be uh, a blocker. But for a traditional puzzle, Right, as Jacob has drawn, that two in the upper left, if the square to the right of it is white, now sees exactly two squares. You do count the square itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be a valid configuration of the two. Uh, whereas if that black wasn't there, if it was some other way, right, that's not good because the two now only sees one cell. Uh, and it's similarly not allowed for the two to see too many cells, right? Like in this instance, the two would see four cells and that's not allowed either. So you have to make sure that each of the given numbers, in addition to being white itself, sees exactly the correct number of white cells uh, before being obstructed by rock or the edge of the grid. And I, I think that's it in terms of the rules. So then the question, uh, it is always true that uh, a, each well-constructed puzzle has a unique solution. So can you find the unique solution from the givens? So. Should we solve through this together, Jacob, or should I tell yes, you how? Yeah, I'm let's solve through this one. And I'd like to say yep. empirically that um, Roger's puzzles all are unique because I was really hoping there would be some mistake somewhere and I could show him later, but there were not any. And every time I thought I found one, we're like, look, it's indeterminate. It turned out I was wrong. Um, so yeah. <laughs> well, Do that's, we can thank yeah. the, the power of computers there. That they, these were all computer aided in construction and checking as we'll talk about. And, Peters, don't make a ton of mistakes. Okay, perfect. So um, but it, it'll make more sense as we get started, but does anyone have any quick questions about any of the rules, any confusion so far? 
So my intuition is that the place to start is at the top right or top left corner, because those seem very well constrained. Is that a good intuition? It, it's a reasonable intuition, right? Looking at places where there's a lot of numbers next to each other. For example, you can do something, and this would be a little bit more advanced than we would usually do at the start. But even from the two in the upper left, uh, Jacob already showed there's essentially only two legal configurations for the two, right? Either it goes one to the right and then stops, or it goes one down and then stops. What's interesting is that in both of those configurations, the third square it's going to have to hit, remembering that all of the cave has to be connected, is that square that's one one down and one over from the corner, that square right there. So in any possible configuration of the two in the upper left corner, that square has to be white. So we can know for sure that that cell is white just from the presence of the two and its location in the corner there. Again, that's sort of an advanced trick. We were, the, a, big, a beginning puzzle like this, you don't have to do things like that in order to solve it, uh, but it's something you can do. I, I will say the way, if I was looking at this puzzle, the, the place I would attack is the bottom left, particularly that 12 and four next to each other. So I, I might ask, why is it interesting to have a very large number and a very small number in the same row? Yeah, the, the 12 and four, for example. So that's a great question. If anyone has any idea about some squares we can solve either as cave or rock in this corner due to the relationship between these two, like Roger was saying. And I'll, I'll wait a second and then jump into an answer. I believe that the to the right of the 12 should be white. Like this. Think about that. Yes. I think that's correct. Do you want to say why? So uh, because the grid is 10 by 10, we know that the sort of the worst case scenario. So if we maxed out the vertical, if the vertical was all, all white, there's still two left over. So no matter and no matter how you configure horizontally, you're going to need the one to the right to be white uh, to have enough um, right because this configuration yeah. would be invalid is what you're saying yes. right yes yep. exactly right that is a Sorry, i don't understand why that configuration is invalid so if you, you only reach 11 12 you have 10 on the vertical plus one horizontally so this would add up oh, to 11 okay, okay. that it can see that makes sense well so yeah i thought the black square was in a bad spot but no it's just because it's only 11. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So this is already an example of sort of a contradiction argument. And I think this is sort of a linear search that is a good technique that Jared discovered where if you have numbers like the 14s and 12s and stuff stick out to me or things where you're next to a smaller number because it helps you. Um, if you go max in some way, you can try to get a contradiction. So perfect. So we know that this one's white. We don't know about these ones, which I just added in the vertical as a hypothetical, but we do know about this one through the special technique Roger showed us. Um, yeah, does anyone see any interesting next steps from realizing that the four and 12 are connected? So I would ask, if you look at the cell above the four, could it be white or black? I'm thinking above the four has got to be uh, clear or to the right of four, which means 
up and left of four and up and right of four would have to be white. Does that sound fair? So you're saying these two would have to be white? And that uh, would imply I don't that the middle has to be white too, right? So. Yes, it would. And that would be yeah. that would be problematic. Because now the four can see five total. Right. Yeah, I think that was just posted in the chat that the one above the four must be black, in fact, because otherwise the four sees too many squares. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so this one does does have to be black because otherwise the four sees too much. Ah, uh, yeah. No, but it's okay. We'll we'll get to it soon. It's really unintuitive at first, which is part of the reason <laughs> I love these problems so much, is because I start out with them and I see no intuition. And you can keep finding these tricks that it feels like each step makes sense, but you can't really predict multiple out at once. So I think this is sort of an interesting thing to keep exploring because every choice we've made so far in this bottom corner has actually yielded new tricks for us to do. So first we found out these were connected. Then we found out the fours limited vertically. Um, is there anything else we can tell about these, these guys here before we continue on somewhere else? And Roger, please take over if you'd like to do the solving of your no, own. No, you're doing great. <laughs> you're doing great. For, for example, how many white squares total is the segment on the bottom row going to be that includes the 12 and 4? And a bound is totally fine as well. But I guess here we know the exact number. Could we have I can, I can, uh, this, for example? Right, we're somehow limited. We couldn't have this. I see there's a radius around the four. That's why you can start to bound things. You know, you, you, you want to avoid that four seeing too many squares. And in fact, we now know the four doesn't see any squares vertically. So we know it sees four squares. They all have to be horizontal. So it has to be contained in a horizontal width section of exactly four. We don't know where it is. It could be one to the left of those three or one to the right of those three, but it has to be exactly four white cells bounded by black cells on either side. So we right. we, we know a lot about that area from the four and now how can we use that knowledge to inform what the 12 is gonna look like? So we know that the, that the uh, 12 needs to have a bunch of white squares above it because the four, like that row, can't have that many that the 12 sees. Um, so there's exactly going to be right. four. Um, and I guess there'll be exactly four that the 12 sees in its row. So its column needs to have nine. And then the one to the right of the two needs to be black. Yes. That's exactly nice. right. Yeah. So interestingly, let's notice how. We, we reused Jared's um, trick about trying to get the 12 to see too much by forcing all vertical and to the left and saying, oh, look, you still need this square to the, white, to the right to be white. And then we did it the other direction where we said, at most, you can go four across. So we need to go all the way up this way. And then Daniel said, hey, look, there's a cap up here. So... We talked about how the two in the top left has um, 
only two configurations available. So now we can see how this one would be forced. Would anyone like to tell me what these squares in here are like? Or I'll just fill it in. <laughs> right, that would be forced. Wait, I missed something very basic. Does the square with the number count as one of the squares? In other words, can the uh, two yes. in the top left see two at the moment? It does. Yes. They okay. see themselves too. So okay. if you don't want to count the square, you need to look at what the number is, subtract one, and then that's all the horizontal and vertical it gets Got to it. see. And the number to the left of 12, uh, the square to the left of 12 should be clear. Is that what we were deciding? Well, it's either that or the one to the right of the four. It could be clear if this ah, one's dark. Ah, sorry. Or this one could be dark with this one being clear like this. Yeah, I, I, I see. Yeah, nice. Nice puzzle, Roger. I don't know yeah. where <laughs> you came up with this approach, but I like this. Yeah, Very good job. Nice. Uh, I, I will so I'll point out, speaking of, uh, as Jacob said, about introducing new rules, we can return to one of the things we said earlier that we haven't really looked at yet. So if you look at that black square above the four now, uh, remember when I, when I talked about what the overall shape of the puzzle must look like, I said all the white has to be connected and all the black squares need to be connected via other black squares to the edge. So now looking at that black square, does that tell me anything about where additional black squares have to be? I see. So it that, seems to me I, you're going to have a, a right angle that's going to get you back down, which means that your additional white will be the bottom left corner, right? No, not I mean, that's the, the fastest way to the grid, but that's not the, right the only way to the edge. I think you, I, I think I know. Can I try? Go for it. <laughs> go for it. I think it would be black to the right of where you are, and then right below that. So. Uh, the first statement is correct, right? We need to have a black okay. to the immediate right of the other black so we can sort of escape from that little dead end that we from have. From the dead end. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, but it could go off to the right and connect correct. anywhere else to an edge. Okay. All right. right. Okay. It could go correct. something like this all the yeah, way to this. Okay. But yeah, this first I, episode. By the way, Jacob, you great. Great job coding this up. I would have 100% made something buggy if I put this together so quickly. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you guys like it. Um, but yeah, we can prove what Roger's saying by contradiction. Let's just pretend this square was white. Now this is this is trapped, right? This can never reach an edge and we don't have a valid puzzle. So yeah, it was a nice time to introduce the new trick where we can get a little bit over here. Um, yeah. And yeah, can this I is ask one Oh, sorry. No, go for it. Go for it, Jared. I wanted to ask a general question about the structure of these puzzles, and maybe I'm like jumping the gun because I assume we're going to talk in a at some point about like how these work in general. But are there ever situations where you have a, I guess, a well-formed puzzle basically has exactly one solution, right? Um, it, are there ever situations where in a well-formed solution there is a white cell? that none of the numbered cells can see? Yes, good question. Yes, that can wind up forced by the connectivity constraints, right? right? Because there's right. this constraint that the white cells all have to be connected. You can actually, as a constructor, you can use that to force specific cells to be white, such as to provide a bridge, say, between two other uh, regions of white, uh, even with no numbers present. And that can be 
that can actually be a show off constructor trick sometimes is uh, you will see puzzles with like with a with a scarcity of numbers. Maybe there's no numbers in the middle. There's no numbers in certain region. Uh, and at first you think, well, that, that can't lead to a unique solution. It appears highly unconstrained in this area. Uh, but if it if if you constructed it just right, maybe there's exactly one path through there to connect to other groups of white and you get a bunch of white cells that are not pointed to by any number. So that can definitely happen. Yeah. Usually in a harder puzzle. Yes, it is a good question. So how are people feeling right now? Do we feel like we're getting a sense of how this works and we should just go a bit faster and we can kind of see this get solved and then we can start constructing different examples and talk about, um, I think it was Jared, what you just asked and ask Roger some other questions or do we want to keep doing this collaboratively until we get to it? There's a fast mode and slow mode. I have a feeling I'm going to have even more trouble preparing for finals now. So thank you. You've ruined my weekend. Uh, I, would be, idea, I would be interested uh, in seeing this solved if it's not going to take too long. Like collaborative. Just, okay, keep going. Keep going the how we have. All right, so perfect. We need to have like at least these um, white because like this column can have at most eight. And so then kind of like to have the 14 see six of them uh, oh I, I miscounted you don't need um uh I miscounted that but like no, no, you're right. um, you know, to, the 14 no, you're right. has you're right. at least six and so you know like the worst case would be like this um mm -hmm. and so, so be white yeah the great use yeah, of the drop exactly right. i did not think about this everyone else please do that too it and, and it illustrates a, a point I want to make is it's I think it's interesting how the deductions propagate right we we made a deduction down near the bottom about this black square and it needed to escape and it sort of didn't really look at first like it was connected to anything else in the puzzle you might have thought all right well that, that didn't didn't actually move us forward at all but it did for the reason Daniel exactly pointed out it limited the options of the 14 which is actually a pretty far away but still because 14 is a pretty large number it's pretty constrained and it shows us, uh, I think we get two more white cells on either side of the 14 based on that logic. Right, so eight vertical, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. This one has to be white. Um, yeah. And one more no, to the right. Oh, one more to the right, right. So eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Exactly. So yeah, great find. And yeah, it is really interesting yeah. as Roger was saying that all of these things we discovered come from this first square, right? Like this allowed us to connect these two, which let us know this one had to be closed, which let us know that uh, the 12 would go up this way, which forms a enclosed region. So the rock needs to escape, which caused the 14 to have space on either side here. Um, but yeah, that's partly why I think they're so fun and why this feels like discovering math to me in a way, because yeah, the next steps are always deducible, but never predictable. So that's one thing I really like about them. So thanks for pointing that out, Roger. Does anybody else want to draw some things up and see if they see anything? Made one observation. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say I can't that find one, one very small observation is that um, when I first saw the puzzle, I thought that symmetry was going to help us a lot. But actually, uh, my intuition is that that's really not true. Uh, that the numbers have a much bigger impact than the placement and the symmetry is not really going to do very much for me at all. Is that more or less correct? 
Yes, I think that that is correct. And we'll talk about uh, when we talk about the constructing part of it, a lot of the constructing, uh, a surprisingly large amount, much like it is for crosswords, is about aesthetics and trying to make the grid look pretty. Um, so things like symmetry of givens, or you may have observed in this fact that all the, in this puzzle, that all the givens were even. Um, there, there's no reason that has to be. It actually isn't going to matter that much for the purpose of solving. Again, it's sort of a more of a flair thing and, and sort of makes the puzzle more visually interesting to look at. So uh, yeah, it can be it can be interesting that uh, the layout of the numbers, the even the identity of the of the given numbers, doesn't have a lot to do with how the puzzle solves. The puzzle really pins on these very specific interactions between pairs of adjacent numbers and stuff like that. Yes, and to corroborate what Robert is saying or what Roger is saying, and from your question, Max, I tried very hard to actually before writing anything down in the puzzle, imagine what shape the solution would look like, even if I didn't get it quite right. And I gained no intuition despite working on this for a couple of years. So maybe someone smarter or more talented in some way could, but I was I struggled with that. All right. What should we do next on here? I have one more deduction. Nice. Um, so if this cell is black, then this adds up to eight, which means that this will have to be white to appease the 10, which would then be too many for the 10, mm -hmm. uh, which means that this must be white. And I don't think there's anything more that we can, like, I don't think we can then go out to this one. I, I think that's still gray. And we also can't yet confirm that this is black. But I, so I think like that's all the deduction you can do right away. Perfect. That's a nice contradiction argument. Great job. Yeah, thinking about them in terms of contradiction is like immediately very useful. Um, and I feel like it's a little different from like, I, I'm, I'm no Sudoku expert. I've done it a little bit, but it feels like Sudoku, I haven't found it as keen on like thinking about it in terms of contradiction. You just sort of narrow down and narrow down, but you never think about it like backwards, so to speak, as, as much. So this is this is very interesting to see how the contradictions come in. Yeah, and this comes up a lot in the more challenging puzzles. Maybe there are ways to do like broader thematic things about the board, but that was how I solved a lot of them, just staring at it for a long time until you find a weird contradiction. Yeah. Are there any easier low-hanging fruits we can try to I, find at other regions? I of think the there, there's another contradiction that proves that this one uh, is not black, because if it were black, then uh, you'd have to have um, those two and then these four, and then you'd overshoot six. Excellent. Exactly right. So this one is not black. So this one is white. Nice. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. And note how that immediately limits the 10, right? Before this, we were saying the 10 can, we, we didn't really know how many it was going to see in its row. Now, because the six is so constrained, we know the 10 either sees exactly five or six. But not more, not more than six, because it, it's going to cause problems for the six that it is now attached to. So that, again, and when, whenever we learn something about a given horizontally, it allows us to think about what that what effect that has on that same given operating vertically. Yes. So one question I have to start off another contradiction based on what Roger was saying: What if we make this one white?
you have an issue with the six, right? Um, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, it's not just that six, but the one below it, right? This needs to be black. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that needs to be black? Well, if this, well, and uh, the one surrounded by the eight and the ten. Mm -hmm. Right. And oh, that and that's, that's the island. Good. Right. So that's a contradiction. So if we make this square white, we reach a contradiction. So we know this square has to be black. Hmm. And then that means that this needs to be white and then this, and then the next one needs to be black. Is everyone... the, the square above the black one needs to be black so that you can escape. Good. Very can, you, good. can you show which black one? Oh, up here. I'm on mobile, so it's a little tough. But the uh, middle, oh, yeah, the middle black one. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Does this make sense to everyone so far? We just did a bunch of things. So anyone not need a recap about what just happened? Well, I'm I'm confused about the six now. I thought you said that the number the numbered square didn't count toward. Uh, the overall count, but the six can see the guy it does, below it. It does one. count. Oh, it does it count. count. Okay, okay. No double count. It counts as one. Okay, okay. Then it makes sense. I feel like the two is always the one I think about when I try to remember that. The two is the smallest legal clue in a right. non-trivial cave puzzle, and it's always itself and one other square. Cool. Yes, yeah, so we got these ones done. Hmm. If no one has a place on the board they want to look, we can go in many different directions. But I would say this is an interesting spot to look as well. Or that might be a lie. Maybe it's not that interesting. I think it's interesting. Yeah, I was just looking there and I realized it, it doesn't, um, it, it needs to be like this or this needs to be black, but not both. Mm -hmm. But Yeah, so let's do an example if we make one of them black. Which one would you like to try? Let's we, do the we corner. Can the corner? Okay. Yeah. And yeah, so we'll see if these are inconclusive or not. So if we do this, does anything happen here? Maybe with the four? Well, it means that this needs to be black and... Or wait, no, 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 never mind, never mind. So if we assume this one here and we made this spot white... Yeah, 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 that needs to be black and this needs far. to be white. Yeah. So again, this is not a true necessary piece because we haven't proven that this corner has to be black. But if we assume that it is, then this is a contradiction. So this one needs to be black here. So if we do this, our six needs to go like this. And I'm going to stop going too far because we might be able to deduce things from here and eventually find a contradiction. But I don't want to do too much and forget the different pieces that we had. So let's see. I believe it was like this. Now let's yeah, try. More, yeah, we can be more conclusive here because if sure. this is black, then this, this needs to go out to six, but then it goes to seven. So that violates, which means that this cannot be black. Yes. Nice. So this one's white. Um, that's a good find. Nice job. Which means that this and this are black. Because if they were, are both the four, the four is already four. satisfied. All right. Nice. 
should we talk about like creating these just with limited time or that's this is white because of the four and then this is black yeah. because of the four and this needs to be black yeah actually right, no never mind it does not need to be black no no you're right that um you're actually right that it does and this is a really oh, yeah because i was thinking like, you can go like this but oh no, no it can it can still go like this well let's let's look at that case let's make this white all right actually th these two don't need to be but yeah that's fine we'll we'll take these out but even in this case look this oh, is yeah. super interesting we just tracked oh, yeah, the white. Yeah. and this is a pattern that was i thought really fascinating when i first saw this anytime you have two blacks let's just make this gray for example two blacks on a diagonal there's a white somewhere. You know this one has to be black. Regardless of how many different paths there are, even if you could have something, some black path go up and to the left. Um, just because if this is not black, it's just gonna, it's cutting. Um, I'm it's not sure I see why that is, because if the black went this, this way, whoops, then the white could connect here. Oh, but then it's, trapped yeah then then this white can't connect up here yeah that's true yes diagonals like this where you have a checkerboard of white and black always cause disconnections i don't really know how to yeah. explain it too well i'm hoping roger's a better one but it is right, right. It, as you say it's one of the key realizations that you make usually early when you're trying to figure out cave puzzles it, it sort of comes from topology if you think about it if you have two whites and two blacks in a checkerboard pattern in this two by two square, we've already said the two whites are connected because the, all whites are connected in the in the final puzzle. So if you think about the topology of the plane, they either have to connect sort of this way or that way. And there's no way those two whites can connect without encircling one of the blacks. And by encircling one of the blacks, you cause a problem. So there's this neat topological result that says you can never have these two by two checkerboards uh, yes. and you have to... So you get, and that, that again is key to many of the harder puzzles is you make, you fill in three of the cells and that tells you what the fourth one has to be and that lets you make progress on the next spot, et cetera. Yes, perfect. So this maybe leads into a good overarching question about puzzle making, if, if it's okay to ask something like that, which is that um, maybe more than most puzzle makers, I would say that your audience is pretty mathematically educated. Uh, Jacob and I have encountered a number of people who have like PhDs in topology who do your puzzles for fun. And uh, also like a number of people who will write fairly sophisticated code to solve some of your puzzles. And I wonder if those facts uh, influence your puzzle making at all. Like, do you think about the, kind of the savviness of your audience a little bit, or do you just kind of make puzzles that are fun to you and not really worry about that too much? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I don't think I've thought about it much, but I would say I would say it's more the latter, right? Like I don't even though it's a, it's sort of interesting. There's often a lot of math theory undergirding these puzzles, like why they work and why certain configurations lead to more interesting puzzle solves than other ones. Uh but it doesn't feel like math when you're doing it, I would say, is almost always true, right? Like puzzle solving feels like its own activity. It's a lot of this constraint propagation and search, like Jacob said, searching for the next place to make progress, figuring out what that, what effect the, the thing you just drew has on, on the other constraints that you're tracking, trying to keep those all straight, um, sometimes trying to look a little bit ahead, 
this this argument by contradiction comes up a lot of if I do this, then other things happen, which is sort of math adjacent. Um, but there, I don't make the real, so some of these puzzles, like you've probably seen if you've played around with Sudoku a lot, a lot of people will do very, very mathematical Sudoku variations where rather than just the numbers having to be unique, there's constraints on the sums or the products or uh, other more arithmetical things. Those can lead to uh, more theoretical uh, deductions where you sort of are not looking locally, but sort of have to think globally or about the whole puzzle and say, maybe there's a, an interesting thing that a lot of puzzles types are susceptible to, not cave so much, but a lot of the other types are susceptible to parity arguments. It turns out if, if you solve a lot of puzzles, you get very familiar with parity. Uh, and uh, oftentimes you can say, you know, because there's an odd number and even number of things in this area, um, even even though they may be far apart, it's gonna force some some action elsewhere in the grid. So getting comfortable with that and 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 other sort of modular, maybe a mod three argument, a mod four argument, depending on the type of puzzle you're doing. Uh, can come into play, but I don't think it does a ton in caves in particular. For for caves, it's a lot of just these these numbers pushing on each other because some want to be big and some want to be small, and the whole cave wants to be connected. And those are sort of the the push and pull, the constraints that you feel uh, whether you're constructing it or solving it. I see you guys are making good progress on the solve. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that's often how these things go is once you once you crack into it and, and start making a little progress, it cascades quickly. Uh, as you can see, once, once you have some solid information in the middle of the grid, now the big numbers are very constrained and they're gonna push out in ways that are gonna be constrained by the other numbers. Uh, it's interesting looking, right? I remember at the, at the beginning, uh, Max, you sort of said, oh, the upper right looks like a good place to start because there's a lot of givens there. As you can see, we've solved most of the puzzle. We haven't even really touched yeah. the upper right yet. <laughs> so, and I think that goes back to what Jacob said about I, even me, as someone who's fairly versed in the puzzle type, I don't have a lot of intuition for what order the solve is going to pro progress in when I look at a new puzzle. Um, it can be very finicky. And also, uh, as I construct these, um, they go through a lot of iterations, right? I'm going to tweak a number, move a number, uh, solve it, tweak a number, solve it again. And it, it can be very interesting, even to me, to watch how the solve order changes, right? By by changing one number, it can entirely flip the 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 order that the grid solves it. Now, instead of going lower lower left around a lower right, maybe the whole thing reverses, and and the the best starting constraints now in the lower right and pushes around to the lower left, uh, and that can happen because basically you're setting up these chains of inference where this 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 clue can can operate in a few different ways and the way it operates is going to depend on this clue which is going to depend on this clue which is going to be depend on this clue and then at some point you're going to have it's almost like physics you're going to have a force at one end or the other that's going to cause all those domino either all the dominoes are going to fall left or all the dominoes are going to fall right and uh and small changes to the opening configuration can wind up totally reversing the solve and and now everything yeah. propagates the, the way you didn't think it was going to go so it's it's yeah it's somehow it came from some chaotic system i don't know how but i love it, it it does and and a lot of that has to do with the uniqueness and that like if we were just throwing random numbers into the grid none of this would happen right like either either 
there, there could be some relation between them, but it wouldn't be as finely balanced, right? It's sort of the uniqueness argument that uh, that it puts everything on a knife edge and says there's there's exactly one way that you can simultaneously satisfy all these constraints. So in his uh, interactive theorem proving class at Northeastern, Pete has his students do a homework assignment where they build a, a, a Sudoku solver using Z3. And uh, you do it like inside of the theorem prover because there's hooks for Z3 in the theorem prover. And then you prove that the thing is sound and complete. And then there's a bonus question, which is like a really cute bonus question, which is what is the hardest and what is the easiest Sudoku puzzle for your solver? And the like surprising answer, if you haven't done this sort of thing before, is that the empty board is by far the hardest, right? Because it's got the largest number of constraints. And of course, sure. <laughs> then it's this enormous Boolean equation that the thing is just chugging and chugging and chugging on. And meanwhile, you Google like hardest Sudoku board in the world and, you, you know, Z3 gets in like a picosecond the answer to the thing. So I wonder, do you have any like funny experiences building these like solvers and constructors where there's counterintuitive aspects to what's kind of easy or difficult for the computer to, to reckon with? Yeah, so so one of the things I, I, I still remember learning when I said about doing this, and it's that this is a while ago because I've been constructing these, including computer-aided construction for a long time now. Uh, but I was surprised at... So I, I would say my first thought was, well, I'm going to keep adding givens until the solution's unique. That's sort of a basic way to construct puzzles, right? I'm going to throw some givens in. I'm going to try and solve from there. If it's not unique, I'll just add more givens. And I'll add more givens. I'll add more givens if it's, until it's unique. And then once it's unique, maybe then I'll stop and, and take a, well, I can also then at that point, maybe see if some of the givens I had put in before I could remove. But I'll also stop and take a look at how difficult it is. So. I was surprised by um, what I found. If if you just do that, if you just sort of stop when it's unique and then check to see where you are, it it was like almost always insanely hard, right? Like hard to the point where a human could not solve it, right? It, it required branching so deep that the computer didn't really have a problem with it, but a human couldn't do it like in, in any amount of reasonable time. Like you have to branch and sub-branch and sub-branch to find contradictions and you really just couldn't do it by hand. And I, and I wasn't expecting that maybe because I had never seen a puzzle so hard because you would never put one out for humans to solve. But it turns out, and after you know a decade of playing with the program, I can sort of confirm that that left to its own devices, a randomly generated unique cave puzzle will actually be almost certainly too hard for a human to solve. So um, in addition to Worrying about the aesthetics and the symmetry and the and the the grid look and the uniqueness. Uh, another thing you have to pay a lot of attention to is the difficulty. Um, so usually you're going to add more givens than are strictly necessary to force a unique solution um, to to bring it down into the level where it's human solvable. And and part of the interesting part for me of writing the solver was thinking about um, what what does it mean for a puzzle to be human solvable. Um, there, there's this totally separate thing you're trying to measure from like how many solutions does this grid have to how complex is it to find the solutions? Um, so that the, the program has to really has to be able to accurately model a human solving process to understand the difference between an easy uh, cave and a hard cave. Otherwise we'd have no idea. So you may be interested to find, and I 
I took a look at my code the other day because again, it's been like 10 years since I wrote this. So I hadn't looked at it in a while. Um, but uh, I actually wrote two solving loops in the program. And I'm not gonna, you don't wanna see my program. My programming is awful. I'm not a programmer. Um, if you guys are interested in this stuff, the, the, the site I would uh, encourage you to check out, I'll put it in the chat. Uh, there's a site called knock.solutions, um, which I think has some really elegant uh, puzzle solving software. It's been written by folks who are not me and know what they're doing. But, um, and it, so it has a cave solver amongst amongst many other genres. Uh, but was it, so in my code, I actually have two solvers. I have a fast solver and a slow solver. So what happens when I make a puzzle is I first start using the fast solver and and both both solvers, work the same way with one big difference, right? So that both um, will make these passes. So each pass, they're gonna go through the grid and try to make what I call atomic deductions. There's basically three kinds of atomic deductions you can make. One is to look at a given and see, do, do I need a certain square to be white or a certain square to be black or, or I'm gonna break this given, right? Because maybe I'm constrained on three of the sides. So I need to grow in the, in the direction of the fourth side. Uh, or maybe not, maybe the opposite. Maybe I've already filled myself, so I need to put black squares around me so I don't go too far. Um, the second is the two by two deduction that we just talked about. So if I have three of the four cells of a two by two, I need that fourth one. Um, and the third has to do with the uh, connectedness, right? Making sure I'm not disconnecting any whites or disconnecting any blacks. And if there's a cell I could add that would either uh, cut the whites apart from one another or strand a group of blacks from reaching the edge, then I know that I can't do that. So there's basically these three atomic deductions. And what the solver does is um, goes through, tries to do as, as many of those as it can. If it does at least one, then it's gonna come back and do a second pass, do as many as it can on the new grid. Uh, and it's gonna repeat that until it can't do any anymore. Uh, and then either the puzzle's broken, in which case you can report that it has no solutions, or the puzzle's done, in which case you can report it had a unique solution, or you haven't finished yet, you still have some indeterminate cells, and of course you have to branch there. So the difference between the fast and the slow solver is the fast solver just picks, I think relatively arbitrarily, some spot, and then just branches, and then solves both sub-puzzles from there, um, which is nice, it's fast, um, and it can quickly tell you whether... Uh, a thing is unique or not, or how many solutions it has, but it doesn't give you a good feel for whether it was hard or not, right? Maybe it just picked the wrong point to branch and it went off on some terrible path that no human would have gone on, but it's fine for the fast solve, right? Usually, so basically the fast solve can quickly tell you how many solutions you have, but doesn't tell you basically anything about the complexity of the search to get there. Um, so, so basically the program will, will sort of get you to a decent state with the fast solve and then switch over to the slow solve. And for the slow solve, it's the same thing, except when your, when your passes sort of die and you now need to branch, it's going to check all possible branch points and say for every remaining indeterminate square in the grid, in the grid, what would happen if I branched there and, uh, how quickly am I going to reach a contradiction? on whichever end of the branch leads to a contradiction. So that's obviously a lot slower. There's a lot more branches to keep track of. I, I does this very rudimentary breath first search where it's trying to check them all uh, and, and try to find uh, good places to stop. Um, so it's a lot slower, but at the end of that, I, I at least can say it's found the minimum branch depth of branch path, right? It's found a solution 
along some path that involved the minimum possible branching. And that's basically what I use as my rubric for difficulty. So I, I, I've even converted it to sort of star levels. If you think about like a lot of puzzle sites will have one star through five star difficulty levels. So um, it, it, for my cave program, it'll report as a one star puzzle, anything that you can get to with only the atomic deductions and in specifically in only, I think it's 12 passes. So 12 passes through just atomic deductions. If it solves from that, you're a one star puzzle. Uh, if you solve just from atomic deductions, but takes more than 12 passes, that's a two star puzzle. Uh, if you have to branch, but the branches resolve themselves after only one pass, right? So you branch, but then on that first pass, you get a contradiction and can undo your branch. If there exists a solve path that only uses branches like that, then it's a three-star puzzle. Um, if it has a lot of those single single depth contradictions, then it's a four-star puzzle. And the, the hardest puzzle type that I it sort of allows is um, you branch and then have to do two passes through the grid to find the contradiction. So essentially you're branching, the branch doesn't cause an immediate contradiction, but it causes things which themselves, at least one of causes an immediate contradiction. And that, again, that threshold turned out to be lower than I thought it would be when I started this project. I thought like, oh yeah, I'll be, I as a human will be able to handle branching and then going out for a while before I find the contradiction. But it turns out that's really not true. That's I think that's basically the limit of what a solver can find is yeah. branch, step, uh, and then con and contradiction. And even that is only, only yeah, I think a cave expert can can do that. Somebody like Jacob at the end of the book, uh, right? Because the, the, So the book proceeds from one star to five star puzzles. So in that last section, each of those puzzles would have required one or two places usually where you had to branch and go a couple steps before you find the contradiction. I don't know if that's how you found it or not, Jacob. It is. No, it's really interesting hearing you talk about how you wrote the program. And it actually makes a lot of sense because um, if you miss, so that's exactly how I did find them. And if you miss any of these steps on the path, it hurts. You will feel it. And there are some puzzles that were like, I think in the 50s and the 70s where I didn't actually find the right way. And it took so much, I missed an idea and it took so much work to find so many layers of these contradictions to still get to the answer. So it is really interesting. It, it does feel like you're kind of on the knife's edge of being able to keep taking a step forward over and over and solve it. And first of all, I'd just like to say uh, congrats to people who solved this while everyone was talking. I was looking at what you were writing and just filling them in. So. We saw our first puzzle today. <laughs> this was, um, I'll just take one moment to go say you should all buy this $10 book because I'm the only one on Goodreads with a five-star review for Roger and we need more of them. But um, on other another question I have, Roger, is a bit more general. And I don't want to ask too many things. We only have a few minutes left and I want to let other people ask questions too. But I think today we all got really excited by doing this puzzle. And there's something that's really intrinsic and interesting about these cave puzzles. And I have my own perspective on what that is. I think that in cave puzzles and in good mathematics, there's sort of this notion of you have a whole bunch of tools you can try to apply in a creative way to take your next step. 
but then you can't really see the whole picture at once. But you also don't want it to just be completely intractable, right? I found Sudokus, it's often like really annoying to find the first thing and then the second half of the puzzle is easy. And somehow the way you've designed the K-puzzles feels like you can kind of get into this flow where each next step takes a decent amount of creativity. And I don't know if that's what you look for when you're designing puzzles or if it's something else or just a personal preference of mine, but that feels like it's at the heart of these things. And I'm, yeah, curious what your thoughts are, Roger, and what other people's thoughts are, and then any other questions after that too. Yeah, I mean, so I think, right, we actually talk, again, in, in talking about the different aspects a puzzle can have, one of the interesting things we talk about is depth, uh, sorry, breadth of search. Not not in the computer sense, but in the, we, we, we call a puzzle a narrow puzzle if at any moment there's sort of only one place where it's possible to make progress. So some puzzles, especially Kate puzzles, especially as they get harder, can be very narrow where there's only one possible starting deduction, but, and, and it can be a little tough to find sometimes, but once you find it, you sort of know the next deduction is gonna have something to do with what you just did. So that sort of limits the search base, right? You're like, I, I just put in some effort to figure out that this particular square is white. It, it really can't tell me that much about some square that's far away on the other side of the grid. It's probably gonna tell me something about the other squares that are either near it in that row and column or et cetera, et cetera. So, it sort of acts as a little signpost of the next thing you want to think about is probably here. Um, and then you can do that and that's going to trigger, you know, a new thing and that's going to have it act as its own signpost for where the next deduction is going to lie. So it sort of winds up forming this trail of breadcrumbs through the grid. Um, that was another thing I, I learned, I think, through this project was how predictable the solution path is, right? I think a lot of people you know, when you sit down and solve Sudokus and stuff, you sort of, you don't think about the fact that is everyone finding the numbers in the same order that I'm finding them? And for many of the cave puzzles, it's really true that there's only, again, especially for the harder ones, there's only one path through. So I can, if you tell me you're halfway through the puzzle, I can actually tell you exactly what your grid looks like because there's only one possible way to be halfway through the puzzle. You must have figured out this, then this, then this, then this. And you're probably stuck on this deduction. So one of the, the things that, that was fun for me about writing this book is there's actually a section of hints at the end of, where I say, you know, if you're stuck on this puzzle, this is probably the step you need to do next. And again, I don't know what your experience was, Jacob, but it was accurate. I, I, I could I, not figure out how you did that at all until you explained how you wrote your solvers. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes I think it can feel like magic having been on the other end of that because you're like, how did this person know exactly where I was going to get stuck? But it, it's sort of computationally definable. This is the hard step of this puzzle. You're going to be able to get to here, and then you're going to get stuck. And the thing you need to realize is this, this exact deduction. Once you get that, you're going to sort of be fine from here to the end. Or maybe there's two stick points, and we'll have two hints for that puzzle at the back of the book. But it turns out to actually be the solution path, the entire path turns out to be fairly predictable, um, which I, I think makes it a nice experience for the solver, right? You know that you know that the thing you just did has to help you. So now figure out how it helps you. Excuse me, Roger, uh, quick question. How did you ever think of this? How did it come upon you? I mean, hit by lightning, uh, traffic accident, <laughs> uh, doing your doctoral thesis and you thought, oh, as a moment, I'll come up with something that will be 
endlessly tormenting to other PhD folks like myself. Where did this come from? So, right. So, and to be to be clear, I don't want to take credit for inventing the cave puzzle itself, right? The genre of cave puzzle uh, predated me. It was invented in Japan. Uh, it was popularized by a company there called Nikolai. So much like Sudoku and, and Kakuro and some of these other types, they have all these types out there. And and uh, it, I think it, they're very creative in coming up with new types. And, and many of them are sort of rearrangements of the same basic pieces, right? You're going to shade some things. There's going to be a loop. There's going to be things like that. But the, people are always impressing me with the, the number of different combinations. I've come up with a few types, but none that I'm particularly excited about. So I feel like my best work has been in writing puzzles within existing types. Um, and that's, I, yeah, I, I, so I, what made me decide that I really wanted to first put a bunch of time into writing a cave solver and then, you know, just write these puzzles. Once I had the solver, now it's fun, right? Like, so it took some time to write the solver. Again, I'm not really a coder, so there's a lot of pain there. But once I have the solver, which really doubles as a constructor, right? A solver and a constructor are very close to the same thing. Um, but now it's fun. And I, you know, if I have some free time, I can just, I the way, uh, we're, we're over time, so I don't have to wax poetic about this, but like the, the way I construct these, I, is I use a process called carving, but that called, I call it carving, where I basically just throw some random numbers into the grid, uh, jiggle things around a little bit until it, it solves uniquely. And now I'm left with a, a unique cave, but usually a bad cave, right? It's not symmetric. It's got numbers all over the place. Solution path might not be very interesting. And then I carve from there. I, I think of it like a sculptor looking at a block of wood and trying to see where's the interesting part of this and carve away the uninteresting parts. So I'll start moving numbers around. Uh, again, constant resolving using the automated tools to, to try to see how the solution flow is changing um, until you know, lining up the givens so that they're all symmetric. You know, if you look at the book, you'll see a lot of the puzzles are, are even more constrained than all even numbers. Maybe they'll be all fours and sevens, or they'll be in specific uh, consecutive patterns and stuff like that. But starting from sort of a random puzzle and trying to nudge it toward what I, a puzzle I think will be interesting for humans to look at and solve uh, is fun. And, and I do it, like I say, I was doing it long before I ever thought about publishing a book. I was just doing it because it amused me as a recreational mathematician to create these configurations that were uniquely solvable. For I love it. That one, was, one, oh yeah, go for it. Oh, I was gonna say, one thing I, I, I'll leave you with, I'll, I posted a link in the chat. This is, this is again, a cave for all of you to solve at your leisure. I think it's on the easy side. And if you look at it, it um, if you look at the numbers in that grid, you should be able to make out a BCC in it so uh wow that is awesome for this engagement you made us a cave puzzle maybe we'll need to have some another interactive solving group for that soon um roger this was so amazingly fun i'm glad we got to solve one um with everyone here i think if you ever wanted to come back and talk about any of these things it sounds like there's a lot of ground we didn't get to cover um so I think I can speak for everyone. I'd say that's a, that would be amazing. So if you ever want to come back, let's do another one. And it could be interesting to see the process of actually making one. Maybe we could see some of your tools there or something like that, or even just solve another one interactively. And I guess before everyone goes, one interesting topic for the future is 
you talked about these sort of atomic rules for solving. And it really strikes me that this could blend with some other club interest where this is really like from your axioms, it feels like some type of first order cave logic. And what would it mean to have some type of theorem prover for these cave puzzles too? So if anyone's interested in that, we should talk more afterwards and see what future events there should be. Because I, yeah. I would be super, super down to host like a hackathon in ACL2 and make a verified cave solver. That would be totally sick. So let's let's do a follow-on. This is a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Roger. Yo, have a nice no problem. Day. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the questions, everybody. I'd be happy to come back. I'm always happy to talk puzzles. So thanks, everyone. Okay. Thank, Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.